Hey, Seamsiders, you may have heard, but the Nook is turning two years old real soon. And so to celebrate, I'm giving away two annual memberships good for the entire year of 2024 to two people listening to the sound of my voice right now. I won't be sharing this giveaway anywhere else but here on Seamside, so seems to me your chances are pretty good you could win. To enter the giveaway, there's a link in the show notes below. Drop over there to get your name in the hat, and you have until December 31st, 2023. I'll draw the winners on January 1st, 2024, and the winners will get 12 months of Quilty Goodness. That's 12 different workshops hosted by visiting artists, 24 sewing circles hosted by me, along with countless other sewing circles hosted by other good folks on the Nook. Every day of the year, there's something happening over on the Nook. There's so much to love. I hope to see you there. Now, today's show is another special episode of Free Advice. I'm your host, Zach Foster, if you hadn't figured that out by now. And in this special episode of Seamside, I'm joined by a guest expert. We answer your questions on quilting and the creative life. Remember, though, just because it's free doesn't mean it's any good. You be the judge. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Luke Haynes. Luke, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Hey, I'm so excited to come on here. I am a, I always say a recovering architect because my sort of study and history and job is in architecture. And that sort of led me to quilting. And I've been a full-time professional quilter for coming up on 20 years, traveling the world and exhibiting all over and mostly making a mess and having a great time. You got to make a mess. It's part of the process. Exactly. So we've got Four questions, Luke, that people have called in. Actually, we had many, we had I think 17 or so questions come in, which is phenomenal. But we had to narrow it down just for sake of time to four. So we're going to listen to each question and then I'm be really curious to know what you would say to these folks. And I'll share a couple of thoughts here and there too. Our first question comes from Lilia in Bozeman, Montana. Hi, Zach. This is Lilia from Bozeman, Montana, devoted member of the NUC. Really honestly, before I joined the NUC, my quilting was project-based quilting, like quilting for production, for a purpose. I'm making a quilt to give a friend or to use myself or a pillow or a bag or whatever. And I've recently been exploring sitting down at the machine with no project or particular production idea in mind and try to just be in the act of a creative flow. But it's been a hard shift to make. It feels a little overwhelming. And so I would love your ideas on how to move away from that kind of rigid structure of a of an outcome quilting, let's call it, and more to a structure of a creative flow and see what the outcome is once I get started on it. So I'd love your thoughts on that. Thank you so much. All right. Luke, so I got some thoughts on that, but I'd, I'd love to hear your take first. Oh, my gosh. I've got a lot of thoughts. So thanks, Lilia, for the question. So... Gosh, so the question, just to sum it up for, for me, <laughs> make sure I got it all, was more about the, the process of going from kind of a, a project-based, in this case, quilting, but in general, creativity, moving towards just creativity for creativity's sake. And I actually have a take on this that might be a little bit sideways, which is to say that I actually think that having a goal in mind is very helpful. 
For example, if you're trying to cook dinner and you're like, I'm not trying to think of what meal to make. And so therefore you grab ingredients out and you throw it in a bucket and then you heat it. Do you freeze it? Do you stir it? Do you eat it? So, so parameters. And again, this is from an architecture brain. So architecture brain works like this. You have a program, AKA, what are you building, right? Is it a house or is it a hundred story superstructure, sky rise, downtown New York City. And those are obviously very different, right? And so the creative process of what your outcome is becomes very paramount from the very beginning. So that is to say, I think it's very important to have a goal in mind for what you are doing. However, you don't have to have a project in mind, right? So if you're sitting down in your studio and you say, I want to make, but I don't want to have to be making a bag for my friend or a quilt for my niece or a sofa cover, but I do want to work. What I do for myself when I want to play creatively is I'm trying to expand on maybe skill sets that I have, or I want to work on materials. And so I'll set myself these little goals. But I find that if you are fully divested from any potential outcome, it becomes this impenetrable writer's block for the way that I kind of think about it. And the advice that I have, the sort of takeaway would be that that to expand the idea of what project might mean, right? And the project can just be, gosh, I'm really excited to take these scraps that I don't know what to do with and put them together until it's bigger, right? That is a project. It doesn't have to be a kind of functional end result. But I do think that the advice that I would have, and I'm excited to hear what Zach has to say, is expand the idea of project away from traditional functional and into something that's a bit more kind of what you're excited to work on. And that scale can be infinite. The size can be infinitely small, infinitely big, etc. But change your idea of project from functional finished thing to what it is that you want to do. Uh, I think that would be my kind of first response there is project as a concept is very important because it gives you a direction, but change your idea of what project quote unquote might actually mean. Luke, I love that take that a goal doesn't have to have step-by-step process that goes along with it, but it can serve as a point on the horizon to aim for, right? That makes a lot of sense to me. I think of, I, when I first started quilting 10 plus years ago, I was a very good Virgo child. Some of you have heard me say this before. And what that meant for me was that I felt like I had to have everything figured out before I got started. And my experience with that was one that kind of tied my hands and therefore it was hard to, I could sit, sit down and actually make something. Since I've been working with material and fabric and patchwork over the last decade, I have shifted away from having to have everything figured out to being open to the process as it's unfolding in front of me. And I say that's kind of brought me more into my moon sign, the Aquarius moon sign that I'm in. And I think the mechanism at work there is over the last decade, I have stepped back from having to have step one, two, three, four spelled out and just be content with step one. And let me just fully immerse myself in step one and see what happens. And then once I've seen what's happening, I'll make step two. And then I'll make step three and I'll go from there. I think of quilting a lot of times as a soft laboratory for living. And it has given me a chance to 
test theories about life and the way I want to show up in this world in a way that is safe and soft. And there's no dire consequences. The worst that's going to happen if I mess up a quilt is I get to cut it up and make a new quilt, right? But it has shown me that I really don't have to know exactly how a thing's going to turn out to have a blast and to make something beautiful. And I, th I think what is happening there is my starting point is often the material. And so as I'm working with the material, I'm trying to keep an open eye on what's happening in my hands at that time. And when I see something different happen or something that sparks my attention, then keep going down that path. I consider it kind of like a little road sign or a little neon sign that shows me where to go next. Like recently I was working on um, making a bunch of practice quilts or little, we might call them like textile sketches for a larger quilt that's going to be built out of silk ties. And I've not worked a lot with silk before. So my first step was to introduce myself to silk. And what I found as I was sewing with the silk is I was really admiring the flounciness of it. And I was admiring the luster of it, how it caught the light. And so as I've begun to work with Amanda, because this is a collaboration, as we've begun to work on this project together, we're keeping in the forefront the things that caught our eye early on in step one, we could say, which is the flounciness and the luster. So how do we make the most of flounce and luster? And then we go from there. And it makes me think of, since you're on the nook, I'll bring this up. Maybe you did mystery quilt, that mystery quilt challenge with us, where a little hack that I have is to not have to have everything figured out. I'm just going to make a bunch of units, a bunch of little things, a bunch of little nonsensical things. Maybe they look like half square triangles. Maybe they look like checkerboards. Maybe they look like half and halves, right? And I'm not even going to think too much about it. The judging mind doesn't come into it. I'm just in production mode in the beginning. But then the fun kicks in when I start combining all those pieces and the noticing eye kicks back in. And I'm seeing what happens, what's catching my attention, and then how do I replicate that or make the most of it? So all of that, Lily, is to say that I just try to, <laughs> I don't know if this could sound like a cliche, live in the moment, right? Like see what's happening right in front of me and be okay with not knowing exactly where the next step is going to take me. I do have one thing that I also would like to put in before we <clears throat> go to the next question, and that is just to say, to keep in the analogy of, of, of a chef, if you are cooking, <laughs> you want to, and you're making breakfast, and you've cooked eggs before, you have a sense of when to stop cooking it because you prefer the whites cooked and the yellows runny, etc. And so Zach is throwing out a lot of these like quilt processes that have come through his experience of making quilts. So I will say there is a brilliant skill set born of making projects and just doing things that are known start to finish to give you an idea of how to do it and what the vernacular is. I think that there's sometimes a really beautiful part to kind of learning a medium of some kind, quilting, sewing, cooking, dancing, uh, wood turning, whatever, that just takes a little bit of practice at the sort of basic 
alphabet, right? And so I think there is something really, you know, I feel like you're probably getting to the point, Lilia, where you are done making projects because you've built the skill set and you say, okay, now I know how. Now I know how to cook an egg. How can I make my eggs different or better than anyone else's or even just more palatable for you? And I think that's a really beautiful moment where you get to take the alphabet that you've learned and make new words and then make new sentences and then make new paragraphs and eventually write your own book. But it takes knowing the alphabet first. And I think that's just a really important thing to make sure to say that if you wanted to get crazy day one, that's also awesome, but there is a lot of benefit from learning skill sets within a medium that have passed the test of thousands of years. Oof, I'm so glad you said that because it reminds me of a moment in a recent workshop where, so it was similar to the mystery call, right? So I'd had the participants make all these different units and then we we're gonna show and tell. And one participant was like, okay, so I've got all these blocks, but now what? <laughs> and I said, well, this is where the soft laboratory part comes in, right? This is where you say, what do I like? What do I want to happen, right? Because you've done all the skill building. You've made all the blocks. Now it's entirely up to you. You know how you like your eggs cooked. Doesn't matter how your partner likes their eggs cooked. You know how to cook yours. So same thing. I can't tell you what next. I said to this participant, I was like, this is just you sitting with your pieces and seeing what happens. And... I'm still waiting to see the follow-up for that. I hope something good happened. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I'm sure it will. And if nothing good happened, I think here's another part to it that I think is also so important to say is it is equally important for nothing good to happen, right? I feel like my students, I always say, make sure that you fail enough to have a sense of what you don't like, right? Because if you only make things that you, f if your eggs are always so delicious, you're going to make the same thing and you won't know that you might like them scrambled or you might like them, po you know? So, so like do some shitty eggs sometimes, pardon my language, and find out what's wrong with, it. make a crappy quilt and say, God, I hate every part of that. And then you can say, okay, next quilt, I am never going to work with silk on the bias because it is the devil. And I now know that, but you won't have known that intuitively maybe. And so I feel like there's also something so brilliant in learning these sort of failures and other side of it too. You need an apple for your orange. <laughs> All right, Lilia, thank you for that question. Coming up next, we have Michelle from Toronto. Hi, Zach and Luke. This is Michelle calling from Toronto, Canada. And my question is, when in your previous lives, back when you were a teacher and an architect, how did you find time to live creatively when you were slogging it at your job? Uh, I don't, I can't work creatively full time, but I would like to incorporate more creative time and uh, more living creatively. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is bringing up a lot of thoughts and a lot of memories from those 18 years I spent in the classroom. Yeah. <laughs> what would your first take on that be, Luke? Michelle, this is such a brilliant question, and it is something that I struggle with a lot. And I, it's a question that comes up a lot. So the question being, how do you incorporate creativity and this sort of joy of making and this into a life that requires working a job, right? And I think that's a really important question. And one that I think a lot of um, people have assumptions about. And I think that there's this sort of assumption that a goal might be to work exclusively creatively. And I can't speak for Zach, but I can say that making the leap to doing it all the time is not Candyland 
flowery bushes and chocolate fountains. It was difficult and one <laughs> sort of life change I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish upon people, right? So for me, the question being, how do you add creativity to your life is a good question, as opposed to how do you change your life for creative exclusive? And I think that's a really good way to ask the question because, um, you know, if you're saying, how can I quit my day job and just be creative? The answer is, you get really uncomfortable and you can't go out to eat and you live in a garage and you sell your car, right? Like, you know, you, you, you want to do it exclusive. That's totally fine, but recognize that your priorities might not be making all day, right? Your priorities might be being actually comfortable. And in that case, I say, keep your job and have a great time. There's a lot of ways to add creativity to a life that aren't giving up that life. And I think that is a big misnomer about kind of like the artist's lifestyle. It's like, oh, it's the same as mine, except all day they don't have a job. And that's just very not true. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, hungry for a bunch of years, in my case, depending on your infrastructure. So, so, so the, and the, basically, a long-winded way to say, I really like the way that you phrased the question. How do you add creativity to your life rather than how do you change your life? And it all comes down to everything in life, in my estimation, comes down to time management through the filter of your priorities. Just hard stop there. Time management through the filter of your priorities. So if your priorities now include adding some creativity, maybe what you do, for example, me, I've been into some like really cool TV shows recently. And so that takes up my evening, right? And that's wonderful. And I'm having a great time catching up on some real trashy TV, but that time could be allocated to reading some architecture books, right? Now my evenings will be reading through these architecture books and taking notes as opposed to watching my stories. And so I think that sort of your question all of a sudden in some ways answers itself as you're saying, okay, how do I add creativity? Well, add creativity, right? So check your priorities and say, okay, what are the things that you can exchange for it? And and, and I do think this is very important, make sure that is actually what you want to do, right? In the sense that like, um, you could eat one meal a day and spend every other meal time sewing or drawing or sketching or working with clay, but like, it also might suck to not have two more meals a day, right? So like, I'm not suggesting that you take away all of your sort of comfort, but just finding some of these edges where you can sort of change your priorities and do some different time management, right? So like, uh, for example, Saturday mornings can always be a time of creativity. And you can say, dear family, I love you. Um, I, I don't know your family situation, Michelle, but you know, say you've got kids and whatever, there's certain responsibilities and that's all lovely and wonderful, but you can say Saturday mornings are cereal <laughs> and I'll see you at noon. And you get that whole morning that is just blocked off to do whatever creativity means to you. And there's some like really some beauty in finding regular time windows for it because A, you can look forward to it and B, you don't feel bad in the interim between it, right? For example, on a Thursday, you're like, oh, I'm tired. I wish I was making something. I had a long day at work. Well, I know Saturday's coming, so I don't feel guilty for going to bed and taking care of myself because I know Saturday's coming. So there's this sort of beauty in knowing that your future is going to happen. And just to finish that point is like having designated time is beautiful in two respects. One, it allows you to make sure that you have the time. And two, it gives you a permission to not feel guilty the rest of the time. And I think that's just as important as 
having the time because we live in a world where there's a lot of stuff that we have to do just to subsist, right? We all need a lot more money than our parents did for basic human life in a lot of ways. And so there's just a lot of hours that goes into doing that, no matter who you are or where you are. But then you feel guilty for not being creative or not doing something. So I think that giving yourself um, a pass on that guilt because you've allocated some time later is also another real wonderful benefit to the question you asked, right? So how do you add creativity to your life? And again, as opposed to sort of um, getting rid of your existing life. I think just adding it into, into your schedule, depending on how your brain works, can really benefit you in so many ways. Luke, I'm here taking notes about what you just said. <laughs> I, I love what you said about kind of setting yourself up for success. I mean, you didn't put it in quite those words. But even today, as a full-time artist, I often think about that principle with when I first wake up in the morning and I make that cup of coffee... I like to have a simple sewing task to do right off the jump, right? I just want to start the day sewing, but I don't want to have to think about it. So I set myself up with, okay, maybe I'm just going to work on this little piece. I know exactly what to do. And so when I wake up the next morning, it's ready. And it reminds me that that's something I did quite a bit when I was still in the classroom, which is I would put my intense creative energy into focus on the weekends when I could really kind of take those deep dives into the project. And then throughout the week, I would do more of the production mode stuff when I already had the plan and I kind of knew where I was going, which sounds like I'm directly contradicting what I said in answer to Lilia's question, but it's, it's how I got through. Because, you know, I was in the classroom for, for so many years and looking back on it, I think that as creative beings, our creativity will find an out one way or another. And for me, what I think when I think about Spanish teacher Zach, it was through the PowerPoints and through the activities I had my students engage in and the way I was bringing in outside material into the classroom. I was expending a lot of my creativity in that direction that I can now reallocate, but it was still engaging in a creative practice, even though it just wasn't, even though it wasn't textiles, right? One thing I thought quite a bit that was a support to me during that time was one of the benefits of having a full-time job is you get to be your own patron, right? Like you get a paycheck for doing your, your nine to five and nobody tells you what kind of work to make when you go home. You get to choose. Now, when creativity becomes your full-time job, then sometimes tougher questions come into play with commissions and what kind of work do, do I need to make work that I know is going to sell versus that I want to make. So it can be a thorny issue. So one thing I remember from my previous chapter is that creative freedom that I felt like I had to be my own patron. That's such an important point. I think just to piggyback that just a little bit, and that is to say that so from the outside, my job is making quilts for sure, but I kind of end up with a schedule, which is a little nine to five of making quilts. But then, and the weird part that makes it so confusing from the outside, if you were looking over, is that I then have to take breaks to go make quilts, <laughs> right? So I stop making the quilts I have to make in order to make the quilts that I want to make. I'm going to go make some quilts to get reinvigorated by making quilts so that I can go make quilts. <laughs> it just, it just, the, the difference there being that the, the thing itself is very similar, but 
I also need to build in that creativity time and enjoyment and excitement. And, you know, Zach's exactly right. Like it's being your own patron is so amazing to say, you know what, I can buy all that material. And if it's not great, that doesn't matter. I'll buy more. Uh, so, so not to make it all about me, but just the, the idea that like, even in my job, which is quilting, I have to build in time to stop my job to go make quilts. <laughs> and there's another shift that happens too, isn't there? That like, when I was still working in the classroom, my creative practice was largely a private thing, right? Whereas now I can't, I want to say I can't afford for my creative practice to be private, but that's not exactly the way I want to say it. But the point still stands, which is I get to slash need to slash as part of the job, share my creative practice with folks and kind of think through and articulate my process. So by choosing to become, to dedicate my time to full-time quilting, I've also chosen to take on a whole new set of job responsibilities that I'm not going to lie. I love them, but they're not needle and thread. You know, they look like sitting at a computer and that kind of thing. But Michelle, I'm wondering if Luke has done a really good job of answering your question. I feel like I've kind of meandered. If your question was, how do I incorporate creativity into my day to day? I'm at a point now where I can tell you the behind the scenes of Senor Foster, which was I always had a little quilt project in my desk drawer. And so like on lunch break after school, when I was like sitting there for a club, I could stitch while the kids were hanging out, right? I would go to the park and hang out. I, if nothing else, I would get construction paper and start cutting it up or doodling, right, on a piece of paper. I found ways to make sure that creative, that creative muscle stayed activated for me, even though it was inside of a Spanish classroom at the time. I, yeah, I think it's super important. And Different brains work in different ways. Like Zach's one where he can just pick up a project that's sitting in his desk drawer and work on it. Uh, for me, I actually need to sort of allocate time because my brain does not multitask. It just does. So I, I cannot switch quickly into a project. I need to sort of like go walk around and play my Wordle and like do whatever it is to get my brain ready to do a project. So for me, I would need to designate half of Saturday to doing some little handwork in the park, whereas Zach is able to pick it up between things. And so it really comes down to some of your way of existing in the world as well as to how uh, creativity can be incorporated. And also like what you need from that creativity is also a very important part of this question. I think often there is an assumption that creativity needs to be public. And I wanna just go ahead and say, bullshit. Make something that you think is awesome and then eat it because it's a cookie or make the coolest quilt that has ever been seen and then put it in your trunk and have a picnic by yourself. Like there is nothing that we have been trained by social media that the only validation for making something amazing is other people appreciating it. And I just want to say F that garbage, make something because it's wonderful is also just as valuable and viable as making something for other consumption. Yeah, because I feel like at the heart of all this is how do we, to the extent that we can, design the lives that we want to live? One question I think of quite often is what good is the hermit's jewel? So just to push back on what you just said a little bit, Luke, what good is the hermit's jewel? This idea that like you may have the most beautiful ruby in the world, but if you're not sharing it and other people can't enjoy it, 
and be inspired by it, what good is it? That's a puzzle to think about. There's no right or wrong answer to that one. All right, Michelle, thank you for your question. Our next question comes from Anne-Marie from Phoenix. Hi, Zach. Hi, Luke. My name is Anne-Marie. I'm calling from Phoenix, Arizona. And my question is probably one a lot of people have. I love to sew. I love to paint. I love to do textile work and all kinds of other things. It's all in my closet, and I want to keep making more, but I have to find an outlet for this stuff. It's not even so much about making money as it is about having some place where these works can live happily with someone who will love them. So it makes me not want to create more when I am just going to fold it up and put it in a closet. You know, is it really just Etsy shops and craft markets and art markets? Is that the only outlet? I sure hope you can help me with this. Thanks, guys. In a lot of ways, it sounds like Anne-Marie's a natural follow-up question to where we ended up with Michelle's question, doesn't it? We've made all this stuff. Now do we keep it for ourselves or do we parcel it out to the world? Like what do we do with the soft, bulky things that we make? What do you do, Luke? It's such a good, it is such a good question. And, you know, I feel like uh, I keep harping on some of my basic ten- tenants for living. And that is, you know, check your edges. What are your priorities? For me, for example, it is my job to sell quilts. Primarily, that's my income. I teach for guilds sometimes, and I I teach for universities sometimes, but as far as like income, it is selling quilt objects. And so for me, because it is required to be income, there's a certain way that I have to treat the work. I cannot just sell it for less because it undervalues the people who have bought it. I still have a lot of quilts that I have made because they can't be sold for less than I need them to be sold for to live off of it. Whereas if you want to make things and the beauty is in the making and getting them into the world and you don't have to sell them, right? The other side of that coin is like, you know, you have a situation that allows you to not need income exclusive from selling your objects, but you still want them into the world. There's a whole different way of approaching that, right? I think that that recognizing that selling them versus giving them changes the way that the owner receives it, right? If you buy something, you have traded resources for it, and that changes your engagement with an object, uh, better or worse, than if you are gifted it, or if you find it, or if you are if you win it. And so as a maker, I think that it's really, I think this is such a brilliant question. And again, there's just so many preconceptions about what we do with objects that we've made. We need to be able to sell them. And then what the cost of that is, is a whole nother series of 15 podcasts. But I think sort of, you know, check your edges about what is important. Do you just love to make them and you love people to have them? Find a community of, of users in, in, in so many different ways who you can give them to. And I'm not suggesting, Anne-Marie, that needs to be you to just give them away that you, uh, you know, are sort of a, a benevolent gifter of, of craft objects. But that is one end to the spectrum, right? One end is, is hoard them and try to sell them for way too much money. And the other end is give them to anyone with a pulse. And I think that the real answer for every living human is somewhere on that spectrum and figuring out where it is that makes the most value for you. And so craft fairs are a great way to get work into the world, but there is a cap on the cost that people are willing to pay 
And unfortunately, sometimes that's roughly the cost of materials when it comes down to quilting, because there is such an undervalue in the time it takes for craft objects as it relates to the value of the finished object. And so maybe that's great. Maybe that's an avenue to sell them. I find it to be really difficult to make a living wage off of it that way. But if that's not what's important, then get them out there. Um, uh, you know, recently, uh, my wife and I have been doing a project where we put quilts in the world for free with a little sign on it and some, you know, an affirmation message across it and a little sign on the bottom that says, if you find this, you can keep it. It was made with love. It could be you washed in the washing machine, you know, have a good life, right? And so that's for us a way of, of kind of giving these to the world and having people own them and exist with them and use them. And, and it's an avenue that allows me to give work to the world that I don't have to push through the requirement of feeding myself and paying rent and all of this. And that's all to say, uh, I think that, you know, finding out what, what is valuable about the reason that you're making things and then sort of checking what you can do to put that value into the world. And, you know, like you said, Amory, like craft fairs, Etsy stores, all of these different avenues are ways of selling it. But if selling it's not that important, there's a lot of other avenues. If you put it on Etsy, then you have to find an audience to bring to that Etsy store in order to buy it. And that's two steps and then sometimes five steps. And, you know, is that worth your time? And is that important? Can you donate it to auctions for... Um, really good causes. There's so many auctions from quilt guilds to uh, homeless shelters to um, elementary schools that need a new gymnasium. There's just a lot of ways of putting the world, putting things into the world once you've saturated your own immediate community with amazing objects. But I do think sort of check your priorities for what value that you are bringing and how to give it and receive it in the same way, right? Like, does it need to be sold? And if so, that's wonderful. What does it need to be sold for in order for your time to be worth it? And that's a different number for a lot of different people. And, you know, I think that's an important way to think about it. So like, where does the work go? I think it's such a, a, a good question. Zach and I were actually just talking about this last week because, you know, I have a lot of quilts that I've made and they are uh, here and I'm caring for them and they are stored and hopefully they will go somewhere someday. But, you know, they take up a chunk of my house. And is that good? Is it bad? You know, no, it's not, you know, not good, not bad. Uh, but it's just the way that I have chosen to do it because of the way that I've created my infrastructure. Whereas there's plenty of makers who I know, beautiful quilt makers, who don't own a single quilt that they've made because they gift them. All their friends are going to college and high school and have babies and retiring and all this. And so they have all of these opportunities to put their love into the world in a way that really resonates with their value structure. And I think that all of, and everything in between is all really important and valuable. Uh, so so sort of my my task for you, and maybe this is sort of belying my, my teacher brain, which is to kind of do some homework to figure out what your values are about, what you're making and sort of what you're bringing to the world and how can you best prove that through how you get it into the world. And that can change. It doesn't have to be the same every day, but you know, fi find out what that is and then do that. And then if that doesn't work, try something else. I don't know, Zach, what do you think? I would add that, yeah, there's a certain element that like 
There's room in this question to examine your own practice and to think about, okay, so what part of quilt making am I really enjoying? There was a long chapter in, in my own practice where I remember talking to Heidi about this, where I really enjoyed making the quilt tops more than I actually enjoyed quilting. And it had dawned on me one day that all these finished quilts are really bulky and they build up really fast when you're thinking about storage. So why don't I just make a bunch of quilt tops and then when the time comes, I can quilt them up like on demand, so to speak, right? That was one way where I could cut down on just the bulk of things. Now, that was when I was doing more machine work and I was using the long arm and things like that. My practice has continued to evolve. And I think in response to living in a small one bedroom apartment that I now do more hand sewing than machine work and I definitely enjoy hand quilting and my projects have shrunk. So I've just started making smaller things that I can fill more intentionally with smaller details that take up less room once they're finished. If you could see the corner of my bedroom at the moment, I have salvaged two Amazon tarp totes. I don't know if anybody outside of, you know, New York City has seen these. I don't know how prevalent they are, but the Amazon drivers around here will put a bunch of packages in one of these big tarp totes and drag them down the sidewalk, ruining, of course, the bottom of the tarp tote. But that's another point. I salvaged two that had been discarded, and those are great quilt storage containers, I'll add. Oh, and one other idea that I had for you, Anne-Marie, is one thing you could do is take an old quilt that's just been sitting folded up in the corner for a while that you're not so crazy about anymore and applique a new quilt top on top of it. Just re-quilt it. So if, if space is part of your concern and your question, think about ways that you can repurpose your own quilts into new quilts. I think that's all I got, Luke. I mean, I think that's great. Yeah, I like it. Then last up, we got Katie from Portland. Hi, Zach and Luke. I'm Katie from Portland. I'm a multimedia artist, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to present my work online through social media and on my website. Previously, I worked in sculpture, but now my practice has shifted towards painting and quilting. And until now, I was sharing those projects on social media using separate accounts. But now I'm thinking of merging them. My concern is that if I apply to galleries, the work might seem unfocused or confusing. Just wondering if you have any thoughts about the best way to curate works digitally when some projects might feel disconnected from other works. Is there a value in presenting your work as a cohesive voice? Thanks. Ooh, I'm going to write down cohesive voice and make sure we come back to that. Luke, how do we do this? In a world that is clamoring for attention and attention is divided 15 million ways, how do we establish this kind of through line through our work in digital spaces? Yeah. I mean, I think Katie has such a good question. And I think the real, the real secret to the question is how authentic are you uh, to the people who are viewing you as a commodity as a maker, right? And I'm sure, Zach, you come up against this edge, as I know I do. So the question Katie asked, I think the, the sort of crux of that question is, uh, how do we deal with ourselves as a commodity and the sort of attention we get through media, right? So as makers who are trying to sell slash market slash present what we make, 
that is the, the sort of online currency that we hope to leverage for offline currency, <laughs> dollar bills. How do we treat that? I think is the sort of part of the crux of the question is like how authentic are we choosing to be to present our information? So Katie's asking whether they should show their sculpture alongside their quilts, alongside everything else. Is that going to get muddy for viewers, specifically mentioning galleries? And I think it's such a good question. And I will say there's a lot of answers to it. One, I will say we're seeing a lot of change in the art world. It is not just oil paintings and marble sculpture anymore. There's a great deal of mixed media. I'm seeing a lot more textiles and quilts going up in actual museum spaces, which is great. I've been advocating for that for decades. And we're seeing a lot more of real quirky stuff, you know, spray foam and concrete. And so I think mixed media is becoming more accessible. So I actually want to sort of push it back a little bit to you, Katie, and say your job is to present your best work when you are applying for people's attention, whether that is followers or galleries or buyers. Um, it is your job to put the, 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 the best foot forward. Now that foot can be a very honest foot, which Zach does really well, which is to say, watch me make and watch me think. Whereas there's a lot of other artists that say, only look at this beautiful thing I've made. It was made in a vacuum. You don't know my family. You don't know my life. You don't know my shoe size, but I made these paintings and here they all are. And so Katie, I want to sort of say is what is your best foot and who are you trying to present to makes a big difference. Zach is building a, an international community of amazing humans. And so by being very honest and real and transparent and vulnerable, he is proving that really well. Whereas high-end Gagosian artists will only present their best paintings because the, their collectors only care about the best thing that they've ever made and how they can buy it. And I think that those are two examples of things that work for those individuals. And so your, your, your task is to figure out what, what it is that you want to present and who it is that you want to present it to. Uh, like for example, if you want to get gallery representation, you need to show them the best work that you make slash the work you want them to sell. And that's going to be very different than if you just want to build an audience of people who are excited about ideas and, and transitions. And so I think that, that sort of, unfortunately, the, the answer is not helpful in us in sort of a microcosm, which is not to sort of answer your question and say whether you should put it all together, but it is to say, put out what you want people to see. I'm a big fan of seeing the real narrative of makers because I really think that that's important to the objects. For example, there is one of my favorite comic artists who does a lot of work with New York Times, etc. also is doing uh, a lot of like stand-up, right? And so he presents his stand-up work alongside his drawn comics as a way to 
bridge the audience and train his audience about something that he's working on that maybe isn't as polished as the thing that he's known for. And, you know, it comes up significantly more seldom than the thing that he is proud of and does well. But he's also training us to watch his comedy and allowing himself a platform for practice. And so I think that in that case, it's a really wonderful that he's doing an overlap because as someone who's already sold on the work that he makes that I've chosen to follow, that I'm riled about, seeing this other work that is potentially not as good yet and not as polished yet, I'm kind of learning more about this individual. And so it's kind of a vulnerable state that I now know more about the maker and am interested in, right? And so that's, the, that's kind of what's happened there. And like on some level though, he is actively alienating people who only want to see comics. That is okay because on some level he's strengthening relationships and on other levels he's letting people go and, and that's okay. And that's just a result of, of what that change is. I'm fully not answering your question except to give you the idea of uh, sort of asking you what it is that you want people to, to take away from how you present. Again, if it's gallerists, that's very different than if it's just humans at large is very different than if it's people you want to sell to directly, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that that kind of informs some of the intentionality about social media. But I, I mean, again, again, there's a lot more overlap in multimedia. So if you find that your works are equally strong, I say combine them because people who who like some stuff that you make will probably like the other stuff that you make. Uh, you might lose some people, you might gain some people, but I think authenticity is significantly easier <laughs> than micromanaging a persona. But they, that's me, you know my take on it. I don't know. That's not particularly directly helpful, but that's kind of how, how I feel about it. Well, I don't know, Zach, what do you think? Well, I think you're right. I, I am more interested in the idea, the person and the story behind the object, oftentimes more so than the object itself. And so I think on a practical level, one thing that we can do, Katie, is if, if you're interested in, in curating a specific segment of what you produce to gallerists, Maybe Instagram isn't exactly the best way to do that. Maybe you set up a special part of your website just for certain modes of expression and your Instagram is more just like a, a catch-all. I don't know, one thought. But when it comes to establishing a through line or a cohesive voice like you're calling it, th there's so many ways you can do that. And I think one way, of course, is a craft. I am Zach Foster Quilts. And so if one day I start making something other than quilts, I'll have to reassess my Instagram handle, right? There's the craft. You could also establish creative voice through an idea. I learned about an exhibit recently from an artist who Luke, I think is out in your neck of the woods somewhere in California, Tuan Andrew Nguyen. And he's a Vietnamese American artist who is multimedia. So in this show, he had documentary video, he had mobiles and he had musical instruments, these kind of chimes, right? Three very different objects in one show. But the thing that tied it all together is that he was telling one story. And in his case for this show, he was trying to draw people's attention to the fact that there are still 50 plus years later, buried in the soils of Vietnam, American bombs that continue to go off. And he's telling that one story through video, through mobiles, and through musical instruments, right? And so even though it may feel kind of jarring to take in these different multimedia modes, 
hopefully the experience, if Wynn has done his job, and I believe that he has, is the the viewer walks away with a well-rounded, more nuanced understanding of the landmines in Vietnam than they would have if he had just focused on video or just focused on mobiles, for example. In my own practice, of course, I dedicate it mainly to quilts, but I'm also interested in suspended objects. I was at a rummage sale recently, Luke, and found a couple of like old antique dolls, you know, the kind that have like ceramic heads and hands and feet, and the rest is like a cloth body. And so I'm like, oh, these things are amazing. I'm going to sew these little dresses and I'm going to tell a story with them that have to do with this Southern White Amnesia collection that I'm working on. So I'm not a doll maker. I've never made doll clothes before, but I saw this opportunity to continue to tell this story that I've been telling through my quilts in another mode. And to me, that's all of a piece, even though those doll clothes won't necessarily be quilts. So I hope there's something in there for you, Katie. Luke, you're nodding like maybe you got one more thing you want to say about that. Oh, I mean, I'm just nodding because you tapped on something that I think is just so important, which is the macro narrative, right? Like your, your narrative can just be quilts or your narrative can be the story that's within quilts or your narrative can be something that is unrelated to quilts that you make quilts of, but you also make whatever it is, doll clothes and sandwiches. And there's a lot to the subtext to what Zach's working on with this Southern White Amnesia narrative. It's just, there's a lot that is not exclusive to quilts. So I think narrative is the right word. Um, and sort of, Katie, what are you presenting? Is it a narrative or is it a medium? And neither is wrong, but if it is exclusive to medium, then I think make sure that you're splitting your work. But if it is a bigger narrative, then you can combine them. And I think Zach's right about, if it's for gallerists, they're not gonna find you on social media. They're, they are day in and day out telling people no who are knocking on their door. So they don't have to do any research uh, so I think that that social media is only there to prove it to them if they're on the fence once you've already made that relationship. So finding a good online space to curate some images and proof of value is a much better way than changing all of your media persona just in case a gallerist is bored from telling high school students or kids right out of art school that they're not good enough to have the next big show. I think that there, you know, there's a lot of work to find gallerist attention because it's constantly being asked for. And I don't think social media is that. So I think you can have a little bit more grace with yourself there. I think narrative is the right word that, that Zach really hit upon. Now I'm going to noodle more on that, but yeah. Well, Luke, I think we set out to do what we wanted to do then. We said when we were planning this show, we're like, we're trying to plan the order of questions. I said, where do we want to start? And Luke says, well, I don't know. Where do you want to end? And we decided we wanted to end with food for thought. I think that's what we've done. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> I think there was a lot of thought food along the way too. I certainly have a lot of things I'm going to go scratch my chin about. You and me both. Luke, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, what a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now, if there's somebody you'd like to recommend to be a guest on this show, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me directly at Zach at ZachFoster.com. Just remember Zach is spelled Z-A-K. And why? I don't know. You have to ask my mama. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, take care, sew something good, and I hope to see you around the nook.